What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. This week, Linda Yu and Bruno Massage speak about the Chinese world order. Daniel produced this podcast. Daniel, tell us about what we're discussing today. Well, in the studio, we had Bruno Massage, who a few years ago was the Europe minister in the Portuguese government. And now he's become an expert on all things China. So he lives in Beijing at the moment. And he's written a fantastic new book about the Belt and Road Initiative, which is this fascinating initiative that the Chinese government has undertaken to invest massively in infrastructure projects around the world as part of an effort to increase its geopolitical ambitions overseas. And he was interviewed by Linda Yu, who's a fantastic economist and broadcaster. She's at Oxford University. We hope you enjoy listening to the podcast. And if you do enjoy it, please rate and review us on iTunes. Hello, I'm Linda Yu. I'm an economist at the University of Oxford and London Business School. Welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. So Bruno, Let's kick off before we talk about your wonderful book. First, tell me what it's like living in Beijing. What are they talking about in China? Hello, Linda. Uh, very nice to be here. It's a very exciting period in Beijing and in China right now. Um, it's, uh, I think, a critical moment in some of the processes that I talk about in the book. This rise of China and the resistance that it's creating all over the world the trade war, or as they prefer to call it in Beijing, the trade dispute between the United States and China. And and I think a very intense debate that is going on, which of course, as we know, not always public, but in dinner conversations, debate flows very easily about the best tactics, the best strategy, what is the other side thinking, uh, what uh, people are thinking in Beijing. So I'm quite happy to be there at this moment, actually. Sounds like a fascinating time. Okay, let's talk about your book. It's a great primer on the Belt and Road. But first of all, what is the Belt and Road before we talk about it? (laughs) Good question. And there's still a lot of uh, uncertainty. I think most people, when they hear about it, and I think most people have heard something about it, this strange name that we can talk about, why why is a belt uh, and and what is the road? The road actually uh, exists uh, on, on water, and the belt on land. So this is a bit perplexing for people who hear about it for the first time. But I think most people have this idea that it's about infrastructure. And then there's usually a follow-up question. If it's just some infrastructure projects, what is all the 
What is all the hustle about? Uh, why is why are so many people talking about this? And in the book, I start with infrastructure, but then very quickly I try to show that this is about a lot more. It's about building a new political and economic order worldwide, and placing China at the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the subtitle of the book is A Chinese World Order, and I, I, I picked it as a sort of definition, immediate and quick definition of what the Belt and Road is. It is a Chinese world order. Mm. So I want to come to talk about um, what a Chinese world order might look like. Um, but first, tell me a little bit more about why you decided to write a book about the Belt and Road. And as you say, it's um, it's going to be familiar to some people, but maybe not to a lot of people. And actually, um, this Chinese project has had a number of names. So when it was launched about five years ago, it was known as One Belt, One Road, uh, abbreviated to OBER, and then it became the Belt and Road Initiative. And now, um, as you say, um, it's now referred to as the Belt and Road. So generally speaking, it's a massive Chinese outward investment project that extends really quite far in terms of the rest of the world. It isn't just a Asia. Um, the uh, the maritime road uh, goes by Southeast Asia, South Asia, East Africa, um, and then of course the overland routes um, reach into Central Eastern Europe and also potentially a bit further. So just uh, say a bit more about why you decided to write about this massive infrastructure project, which we should probably add is continuing. It's not a, a limited project, is it? It's supposed to be complete in 2049. Wow. 30 years from now. That's long-term planning. (laughs) And shows you the ambition and the scope of the initiative. What we've seen so far is nothing compared to what is still to come. Uh, When I left government, I was in the Portuguese government. Um, When I left government, I wanted to uh, use my time trying to understand what's happening in the world that is important. And very quickly, it became obvious to me that this is perhaps what's uh, what's happening in the world now that will define uh, the future, or at least will help define the future. So I wanted to see it for myself. It was also the period when the Belt and Road was really coming into its own. It was officially launched at the end of 2013. By 2015, things were starting to happen. And I travel extensively. Uh, These travels are described in my previous book. I traveled extensively in the regions where the Belt and Road is starting to have an impact, Kazakhstan, Pakistan, Central Asia, the Caucasus. And it became even more obvious to me that this was important. Uh, I don't think it's very easy to find uh, good descriptions and good analyses of the Belt and Road. Many of them are very technical, come from think tanks. Others come from China. And the problem there is that When the Chinese talk about the Belt and Road, that is part of the Belt and Road. The promotion of the Belt and Road is itself a part of the Belt and Road. So it's not objective analysis. I think this is really the first book, a full-length book in English that tries to explain what it is about. It became a lot more difficult than I thought at first. Why? Because the Belt and Road is really about everything. It starts with infrastructure, but then it's about industry, it's about shipping, it's about logistics, it's about culture, and it's about politics. It's also about politics. It struck me at some point that it's a lot like those novels by Dostoevsky or Dickens or Flaubert, 
where the whole idea is to include every aspect of human life inside the novel. And the Belt and Road has the same kind of ambition. Every aspect of human life is supposed to be part of this plan. Makes it very vague. No one really knows what it's trying to achieve ultimately, but it makes it also very exciting and, and, and very interesting. Um, I think we lack in the West this massive ambition that the Belt and Road shows. You describe in the book um, the Belt and Road Initiative um, when China lends to countries. And, for instance, you talk about Sri Lanka um, when they couldn't repay the Chinese loans uh, that were given to them to develop infrastructure and other things. Um, they had to hand over a port, which is now 70% owned by China and is potentially a new naval outpost. So you quote the former U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, who described Belt and Road as a Faustian pact by which countries sacrifice their independence for cheap loans. Yes, two very interesting things there. First of all, this question of credit and money, and I'll return to it. It's quite important. And then, of course, the question of the United States and how it looks at the Belt and Road. For about a year or two years at the end of Obama's term, it was not clear how the United States would regard this. Of course, he would never applaud and support, but for a moment it seemed that he would uh, also not actively try to stop it. It's clear with, with Donald Trump that it is trying to stop it, uh, and that makes the Belt and Road all the more important. It's perhaps the main element of contention between the United States and China at the moment. It's not a trade deficit. It's really China's plans for an ambitious global role. The United States wants to stop that. So the conflict that we're seeing, and that in my opinion will get worse before it gets better, if it ever gets better, is a lot about the Belt and Road. China is investing a lot of money, sometimes less than the official numbers, but a lot of money, certainly more money than the West can invest. So it's uh, those people who, who are ready to point out that it's in the end not as much as, as has been announced. Well, what matters is do countries turn to China or do they turn to the West? And China has been showing more ability to invest and to project power abroad with the consequence that many of these countries have become indebted to China and that has placed further stress on their public finances. Some people argue that this is a way for China to extend control over these countries. After all, who controls public debt controls public policy as well. That, I have to say, is in the end not so different from what the United States uh, has done for 100 120 years. We'll talk later, I think, about uh, the values that are underlining the Belt and Road. And I think that's where the difference shows up. But in the sense of uh, showing global ambition and the exercise of global power, I think what China is trying to do is simply to replace the United States as the center of global power. Interestingly, the only time that Donald Trump is known to have spoken about the Belt and Road, he was at a private dinner, which was then reported and leaked to the media, and during the dinner, he told some businessmen, some American businessmen, that he regarded the Belt and Road as insulting without any further elaboration. But it seemed clear to me that what he meant is it's an insult to the United States because it's meant to replace the United States as the center of global power. Mm, fascinating. Fascinating. 
Um, so let's focus a bit on the credit side. Um, there, one of the uh, concerns around the Belt and Road is that countries fall into a debt trap. They borrow too much from China,、uh, in part because China doesn't impose conditions that you might expect from lenders such as the、uh, World Bank,、uh, you know, tied to the International Monetary Fund, basically Western institutions or even aid agencies.、Um, so just say a bit about. About the debt trap, the debt trap aspect, and then also、um, these,、uh, the Sri Lankan case where China is almost doing a, a debt for equity swap. If you can't pay your debt, then we seize assets and we'll operate a port. So I think this is one of the issues that a lot of people who might look at the Belt and Road might say, "Hmm, um, is this going to be a, a source of concern,、um, especially as more countries' loans come due in the coming years?" I think it should be a source of concern.、Uh, it adds to global financial instability. It could be the trigger for a major worldwide financial crisis in the future. So I do discuss that in the book, and I see it as a major source of concern. China now has a global financial role, increasingly so, without the control mechanisms, without the scrutiny, without the well-tested financial mechanisms that the West has. And remember, even the West led us to the. 2008 financial crisis, global financial crisis. Now imagine a China that is only learning how to do this. That looks a lot like the West 100 or 200 years ago, with the massive amounts of credit that are involved. I think it's a real source for concern. I don't necessarily see it as a mechanism to uh, uh, take uh, control over these countries. If that is happening, I don't think it's. Uh, primarily about credit and loans. It's about political influence. It's about economic influence. It's about the tools that gives you to tell a prime minister in another country that if he doesn't do what you want,、uh, what China wants, that perhaps investment will be stopped and perhaps unemployment will go up and he will lose the next elections. I think these are the mechanisms. Are a lot more political. So I'm not a particular subscriber of the idea that that is meant. Deliberately as a trap. By the way, if it is a trap, China might also be caught in that trap.、Uh, Chinese banks are getting overexposed.、Uh, China is losing a lot of money. The example of Sri Lanka, where China invested a billion dollars in a port that everyone in China tells me will not make money for thirty years. I'm not sure who got caught in the trap. If it was Sri Lanka, China was there as well.、Mm. Um. China's put a lot of investment in places, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. So the East Africa region has benefited a lot from、um, Chinese investment, industrialization. Perhaps on the back of that,、um, is there a sense that, and this is of course the Chinese official line about the Belt and Road, is that it's to help countries' economic development. So there, are they also putting in funds into countries for infrastructure that just otherwise? Wouldn't be available to developing countries. Yes, that's precisely, I think, the the dilemma. China is investing in 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 Africa a lot, and other parts of the world that would have trouble accessing international financial markets. Parts of the world that the West has has decided are not part of their plans.、Um, China is, of course, imposing costs on these countries: environmental, social. Uh, labor standards、uh, are as low as they can get.、Uh, we re- we hear and read about really terrible stories about what is happening in the Democratic Republic of Congo,、uh, in the cobalt mines there, the process led by Chinese companies. This is all true, 
and, and something should be done about it. On the other hand, one has to ask if China was not there, no one would be. And Africa would still be, if it would be more marginal uh, in the world economy than it already is. Uh, I traveled recently in Djibouti and Ethiopia, and you see Chinese businessmen everywhere. You simply don't see European businessmen or American business. Why? Because they just regard these countries as trouble spots um, from where business should stay away. The Chinese have a more uh, ruthless approach, which, of course, has the positive side of actually being there and the negative side of the costs that are being imposed on these countries. Mm. Um, the, I want to move to um, talk about um, whether it's a Chinese world order. This is subtitle um, of your book. Um, you mentioned that it's a symbol. The Belt and Road is a symbol of China um, as a superpower in some respects. Um, is it the case that China is remaking the world economy and putting itself at the center of capitalism and globalization? I think it's increasingly the case. But think about the Belt and Road as a master plan, as a long-term plan, which in its first stages might not look like much. PCs are being put in place, ready to be activated. And by the way, they will be turned on, switched on, more or less at the same time, but later in the process. And if you travel around the world, you see these pieces being put in place. There's a port here, and there's a railway there, and there's an industrial park somewhere else. And all these follow, to a considerable extent, a certain logic, a certain logic of reordering production chains and value chains worldwide. When the Chinese think about the world economy to come, they imagine a system where ports, the, the main ports will be placed here, and the main industrial areas will be placed here, and Chinese interests will be able to organize very sophisticated global production chains. Give you an example, cobalt will be mined in the Congo, will be transported to Kazakhstan, electric batteries will be built there, and then ultimately electric vehicles, electrical cars will be built in China. And most of the value in these production chains will be kept in China. Now, it may not look like much yet, but remember, this is a plan for 30 years and the pieces are being put in place. Mm, interesting. Um, we spoke a moment ago um, about uh, the United States' reaction to the Belt and Road. What about the European Union's reaction? The European Union uh, hesitated for three or four years it has recently published a strategy which is clearly a response to the Belt and Road. It's a strategy to connect Europe and Asia. By the way, it sort of follows on the interpretation of the Belt and Road as being about connecting Asia and Europe, which it is, but it's more than that. So there's nothing in, this, in the European strategy about uh, production chains, value chains, which, as I was just talking about, seems to me to be the core of the initiative. The initiative is essentially about industry and trade because the Chinese regard this as the core of an economy and a society. The European Union is still talking a lot about transport, infrastructure, communication infrastructure, but it's already a more sophisticated document than the ones, uh, very preliminary ones that are published before. But what does the European Union uh, write about in its strategy? It says that it has no money to spend on any of this, even though it regards it as very important, and then finishes the 15-page document by saying that 
Really, any initiative, any effort to connect Europe and Asia should follow European rules. Not clear why it should follow European rules if it connects Europe and Asia, and not clear why it should follow European rules if Europe is actually not putting down the money for it. So there, these are the doubts that the document raises, but clearly the European Union is now much more alert about this, and the, thro- the threat, or the challenge, if you prefer, that the Belt and Road could pose to Europe. That leads me to my next question about um, will uh, China's master plan, the Belt and Road, generate a new set of political values to rival that of the West? So you write about um, how Chinese values differ. So one contrast that you drew was between the European focus on transparency and the Chinese um, preference for opacity. So just say a bit about that. And this links obviously to the answer that you just gave about European values versus other values in terms of governing um, links between Europe and Asia. Yes. Well, my assumption here is that values differ. The, The fundamental values organizing political and social life are very different in China or in Europe. And therefore, Global values, the values governing the global economy and global politics will be very different whether it's Europe, the United States or China that is organizing the global economy. That's my uh, starting point. And then we try to look at what those values are. We know that they're not going to be objective, universal. In the West, sometimes there's this illusion that uh, Western values are the values that everyone would accept if only they would develop or if only they would um, embrace uh, modernity. I disagree with that, and I try to explore how a Chinese world order would differ from ours. One obvious difference is the idea of public transparency and public reason. Sometimes there's a joke made in Brussels that the European Union doesn't have to worry about spies and intelligence gathering in Brussels because all its documents are public. They are all online. Unfortunately, there are millions of them, and they are all unintelligible. (laughs) And that's a bit true in the sense at least that the European Union uh, is very transparent. Uh, Everything is public and it's meant to be that way. China doesn't work like this. What you hear in China is a different kind of joke, uh, which goes like this. Uh, You say in the West that individuals need privacy. Well, the Chinese Communist Party also has a right to privacy. The idea is that plans need to be organized with a level of confidentiality, of secrecy, that not everyone should have access to everything. Writing this book, it became very clear to me that already in this formative stage, the first five years, it's very difficult to get to to information. This was a book written on the road, talking to people, traveling, visiting places, trying to investigate. And I think that's the only way to write a book about the Belt and Road. You cannot write it at home. Um, finding information on the internet because nothing is there. I don't think this is uh, something specific to this moment where the Belt and Road is being developed. I think if the Belt and Road becomes the essential um, pole of a new world order, then the value that will be embodied in this new world order will be a value of secrecy, confidentiality, And transparency will no longer be regarded as an organizing principle the way it is now. Mm. We're just going to take a short pause, and I want to come back on that point. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. If you've made it this far into the podcast, you're obviously enjoying it. So please leave us a review or a rating on iTunes so that more people can find out about the Intelligence Squared podcast. And now back to the show. So before the break, you were talking about the kind of values that we might expect um, if it's a Chinese world order. So just elaborate a little bit more about what other things we might expect if we live in the 21st century under a Chinese world order versus the Western order that came before. Well, Linda, it's, it's a little difficult for the time being to be absolutely sure how it, it will look like. I think even the Chinese authorities have doubts about this. I made a choice in my book of presenting three ways in which a Chinese world order would almost inevitably be different from ours. One is the idea of transparency and public reason. The second one, I think there would be a return to something like old-fashioned morality. Uh, you see all the time in Chinese discussions uh, a certain focus on moral, personal values. And there's even some literature elaborating how one of the things that is wrong with the West is not to rely on virtue, not to rely on, on the virtues of the human soul, we, of course, in the West chose not to. We thought it is a good idea to keep morality out of politics, uh, to have politics that is impartial, objective, that doesn't rely on moral ties, which are always subjective and create all kinds of problems. But, of course, this is not how China sees politics. Uh, even in international relations, already in this initial stage of the Belt and Road, you hear a lot about gratitude, uh, ingratitude. You hear a lot about respect 
especially respect for those that are more powerful. You hear a lot about retribution, that if something does, if someone does something that is not regarded as constructive by Beijing, there will be a punishment. And it's presented as a punishment as a way to reinforce a certain order of gratitude and retribution. All this, I think, will be increasingly developed as the Belt and Road grows more powerful. When Mongolia received the Dalai Lama, immediately it got a punishment that was presented as a punishment. Uh, of course, the United States will punish you, but you will always be in the language of contracts, of commitments, in a very formal legal language. This will not be the language that China will adopt if it is able to impose its worldview on the world. And finally, I also pick a certain love of technology, which I see in Beijing every day, uh, a love for technological transformation. The Chinese are very comfortable with change, probably because they had so much of it for the past 40 or 60 or 70 years, if you prefer, change of different kinds of, uh, with the cultural revolution and with economic growth, but still change. And they are very comfortable with it. They embrace change uh, in a way that the West doesn't anymore. So I see the Belt and Road as being in some sense uh, a world order marked by quick technological change, which will be promoted, embraced, a world in some respects resembling the images we see in science fiction movies. So it sounds like, in your view, is this the biggest challenge to the existing world order based on democracy um, and the institutions associated with it, some of the values that you discussed. Um, just say a bit about that. I think so. Uh, I see that uh, all over the world, um, Russia does not offer an alternative that people anywhere regard as attractive. Um, Islam and Islamic societies don't offer an alternative that people outside Islamic societies regard as attractive. But China does. Whether we like it or not, we have to recognize that it does. And if you travel in Africa, in Southeast Asia, uh, in India, and even in parts of Europe, you start to see a certain attraction to the Chinese model, which sometimes is not a very well-educated opinion, but it's there. I think China has yet to, de to, to develop and define a certain set of uh, uh, rules, principles, values, images, metaphors, that can pull people into its uh, cultural orbit, but I think it's happening. I think this idea of technology is an important one. People who are attracted to technological change will increasingly be attracted to life in China, as it appears. And, uh, of course, a, a certain sense of uh, state efficiency, the state's ability to deliver results. If the West continues to be captured by paralysis of all kinds... Uh, where it takes 10 years to build a bridge while China builds it in two or three weeks, um, this will increasingly be a challenge for Western societies to which they will have to respond. Will it lead to a clash with the United States? You write about a number of scenarios as to how this new world order could take hold. Yes, it's already happening. Uh, the United States will, of course, not uh, willingly... Uh, abandon its place as as the single global superpower. Uh, I had a recently a, a very interesting meeting with uh, with Chinese uh, uh, policymakers, uh, and they made two points. First, that they now understand that the United States will not allow China to share the limelight on equal terms, and second, that they 
won't accept a world order where China plays the role of Japan or Germany. Perhaps China could become a very prosperous country in 40 or 50 years, but it would always be subordinate to the United States on the major questions. I don't think Chinese authorities and Chinese public opinion will accept this. But then we have a problem. China will not accept being number two, and the United States will not accept stop, uh, stopping being number one. Uh, I think we should all be aware and, and wake up to the fact that we have a problem here. How big a problem, dare I ask? I think we'll be through uh, a period uh, measured in decades of increasing conflict between the United States and China. But I also think it will be conflict of the kind we've already seen over the past year or two. It will be conflict in the context of integrated economies. It will be conflict using new weapons that are available now. They are weapons that have to do with the very networks that bring the two countries and the two economies together. The internet, information flows, trade, infrastructure. So I don't see a military conflict on the horizon, although we know that sometimes countries lose control over these processes. But I see competition of a very intense kind having to do with control over infrastructure and control over technology. Well, that's a lot to chew over. <laughs> We're, we've only got a few minutes left, but I do want to um, to cover a few more um, aspects about this. I mean, the very first thing is obviously you're very well traveled. You've worked at the highest level of policy in Europe. You're now living in China. You have a wonderful quote in your book, um, which you say, politics is to some extent always about deception. So for our listeners who might say, well, how do I maneuver in this world? Any tips about trying to gain some insights into all of this besides buying your book? (laughs) Yes, that that would be the starting point. Uh, I think think that's true. Uh, And that's actually the main question that uh, this dispute between the United States and China raises. Um, There are lots of smart people on both sides trying to guess what the real intentions of the other side are. Does China really want to remake the world in its image? And, you know, my answer in this book is yes. My suggestion to the reader, I think, is to try to get views on on all sides. Uh, This is no longer a very simple world where at least the main questions have been answered already. This is a world where questions are being raised anew, new questions are appearing, and where you have to be aware that uh, to old questions, one answer may be sufficient, but to new questions, you need many different answers, and you need to be comfortable with the fact that many opposing answers are equally plausible. In the book, I try to present alternatives to my own way of, um, of looking at this. I finish the book, the last 20 or 30 pages, with uh, drawing uh, four scenarios. I pick one, but I leave the other three there. I think uh, writers and journalists and intellectuals in general have to do this. Uh, the honest proposition now is to present your ideas with some awareness that there are alternatives, that the questions have suddenly become very difficult, and that the future suddenly looks very open. When you were Europe Minister for Portugal, what was it like negotiating with Chinese policymakers? We had uh, negotiations about Chinese investment that were not conducted by me. And then we had a very interesting conversation. I wouldn't call it a negotiation, never got to that point. 
China was interested and is interested in creating different groups within the European Union. Now, people in Brussels will tell you this is a strategy to divide the European Union. People in China will tell you that this is a pragmatic approach to the intensification of relations. But the fact is China wanted to create a group of six countries in southern Europe uh, with which it could have privileged relations. We would meet once a year and have projects, joint projects. We have projects together. And that clearly raised a question that is now a question for every European country. Do you try to do this with China or do you try to keep the European Union together and to negotiate with China as a single voice? And we decided to do the latter when I was in the government. Uh, I think, by the way, that that choice has now been considerably inverted by the current government in Portugal, which has just signed a memorandum of understanding with China, even after being pressured by Germany and France not to do it. But clearly, uh, Europe has to make a choice here. It has to develop a common policy towards China. And if it takes too long to do that, individual countries will do it for it. Mm. Uh, there was a, a phrase that you used to describe um, the way the Chinese view deals. So we've heard about um, China saying trade deals, for instance, or investment deals are not zero-sum games. They're win-win. But you also have a phrase, all win. Did you come across that personally when you were in these discussions? <laughs> uh, yes, of course, China is, is interested in, in offering an alternative. Uh, and I think uh, to some extent... We have to take that idea seriously. Um, it is true that, that China uh, never had a colonial empire of the kind that Europeans had. It's true that China, until now, has not shown great interest in uh, forcing countries to adopt its own model. I think that's changing as China grows more powerful. But by the same token that I say that the Chinese model is different from ours, I think it is possible to take seriously the idea that they have that geopolitics will be finished if China is, China is in control uh, and that the model will be a model of cooperation. Um, I would say like, like Ronald Reagan once said that, you know, trust but verify. Um, okay, let's look at this new model of international relations. But in the knowledge which I have from my studies uh, and from my way of looking at the world, that probably state competition is not going away whether China is in charge or the United States is in charge or Europe is in charge, state competition, state rivalry is a permanent feature of human life. Mm. Finally, what are you going to write about next? You've written about Eurasia as a geopolitical concept. You've written about Belt and Road, a new Chinese world order. Um, so what's next? Or is this the story of the century? It is the story of the century, but there are other stories. I have two projects that I'm working on. One is a book about America, because this book and my previous one talked about the old world, Eurasia, uh, with a bit of Africa. And I think it's obvious that the next book has to be, well, what happens to America in, this, in the world that we've been describing? Uh, big changes are also happening in America. Where are they leading the country? That's the first project and the one that I will finish uh, in 2019. And then I have a project of writing a novel uh, which would be set in this new world. How about a novel set in the Belt and Road world or in a world where China, India, Africa uh, are in some sense the places where the exciting things are happening? 
I think there's a very interesting novel that, that can be written from this um, starting point. I look forward to reading that. And I certainly enjoyed reading uh, this current book, Belt and Road, A Chinese World Order. And I, I want to thank uh, Bruno Massage for this wonderful discussion. Um, just fascinating insights into um, really, I think, a an initiative by China that is very far-reaching, um, and we should all just know a bit more about. So thank you very much for um, speaking to me about it. And um, and again, I'm Linda Yu. It's been my pleasure to present this Intelligence Squared podcast. And if you want to hear other podcasts and sign up for events as well, go to intelligencesquared.com. Thank you, Linda. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Bruno. Thank you all for listening. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.